Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Procina Wells and Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Amber Woodland, one of the attorneys at Procina Wells and Woodland, and I'm joined today by Michelle Procina Wells. Glad to be here. Hello. <laughs> We're excited to continue discussing some of the strategies that we implement when families need long-term care. And we've talked about pre-planning, the use of an irrevocable trust in prior episodes. We're ta- we've, we will talk about crisis planning and and some of the last minute strategies that we implement. But the focus of today's podcast is really about what we call intermediate planning. Mm-hmm. So there are a few strategies we're gonna explore. And I guess really to set the stage, what intermediate planning means to us is when a loved one needs care, maybe in the next three years or two years, maybe they've received a diagnosis of Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, but they don't need care right now. Right. They also don't think that they have a full five-year planning window and could utilize the irrevocable trust as a planning tool. Right. So we're kind of right smack in the middle. Yeah, I find that intermediate planning is always good for a family where maybe the family has started, you know, we'll say it's mom, you know, is slowing down, starting to fail, or maybe there's an early diagnosis and family is already stepping in and providing care, but yeah, they're not ready to have outside caregivers come in yet, or they're certainly not ready for facility level care. And so that's, it's a really great planning window. There's some great planning opportunities. And it's one of those things where people really aren't aware. Mm -hmm. They think that, you know, it's either too late to do anything or they feel like, cause they're in this interim sort of time, you know, that there's really nothing that can be done. So it's a good topic for us to be able to, to tell people about. I think we had a case just in the last couple of weeks where I said to myself, I wish they had called us sooner right. because there would have been planning that we could have implemented even with only a one or two year planning window had they reached out to us sooner. Yes. So I think it's important to note too, that particularly for our Maryland clients, mm-hmm. Um, this is a really great topic because in Maryland, you know, the Medicaid program is generally only, only going to pay for care when a person is in a facility. You know, in Delaware, we're fortunate that there's the home and community-based waiver program, so we can get people eligible for, for Medicaid benefits much earlier. But in Maryland, it's really important to be looking ahead, and if it looks like facility-level care is going to be needed in, within a few years, that these intermediate strategies are really great. Perfect. So let's jump right in and talk about two types of contractual agreements that we implement for families that are in this circumstance of loved one needs care, maybe just starting out down that journey of needing care, not ready for skilled care, trying to keep them in their home as long as possible. So there are two contracts that we implement. One's called a caregiver agreement. The other is called a contribution agreement. Sometimes they can be used together. Sometimes they're used separately. So let's start with the caregiver agreement. Just kind of tease that up for us and what that means and who would even be interested in using something like that as a tool. So caregiver agreements, it's interesting because this arrangement is happening all the time without any kind of contractual agreement, without any kind of payment. So again, I'll say it's mom who, you know, is, is needing help um, and, you know, we'll say daughter is, you know, stepping in and is there and helping mom, you know, maybe preparing meals, maybe cleaning, maybe taking mom to doctor's appointments or, or you know, managing her medications or whatever it might be. And daughter typically is never going to ask mom to pay her for those services. But in the Medicaid planning world, 
it is a really smart strategy for daughter to be paid or whether it's son or granddaughter or niece or nephew or whoever. So it's not limited to only a child. Um, but so you know, what needs to happen is there needs to be an actual contractual agreement written up. They're not horribly complicated, but um, it sets typically an hourly rate that the caregiver would be paid. Um, it can, they can be paid weekly, they can be paid every two weeks, you know, so all of that can be structured. But what happens when it's set up as a formal contractual agreement, in my example, if it's mom, if mom later is applying for Medicaid benefits, and she's been paying daughter for care pursuant to an actual written agreement, that's not going to be considered a gift to daughter. Um, really important thing, too, is that the payments have to be made at the same time that the care is being provided. So if mom is getting ready to apply for Medicaid and daughter's been providing, you know, legitimately providing care for the last two years, mom can't all of a sudden just pay daughter, you know, 20 grand for the care that she's provided for the last two years. That's not going to fly. Medicaid's going to call that a gift every time. But if there's a written caregiver agreement and mom has been paying daughter, consistently over the two years, then Medicaid's not going to consider that a gift. They're going to consider that actual payment for services. So it's a great way to be able to shift some assets and mm -hmm. some cash, you know, from the whoever that Medicaid applicant is going to be to whoever has been providing care for them. Perfect. And so this arrangement of paying a caregiver, and in your example, a caregiver child, is a great way of transitioning some funds from the Medicaid applicant to that caregiver child in this example. The trade-off, though, is that <laughs> the caregiver child is responsible for paying income taxes right. on the payments that are being received because it's compensation. Right. Yes. But we always say a little bit of income taxes is better than leaving all of that money in the hands of the potential Medicaid applicant that would otherwise have to be spent down right. should they need right. long-term care right. in the future. Yes. We also, kind of from an evidentiary standpoint, recommend that the caregiver keep some sort of written law. Yes. Do you want to just explain sure. how that's used and why we recommend that be used? So again, the whole goal of the caregiver agreement is to set up, to have a paper trail, to set it up so that if, you know, again, mom is applying for Medicaid, that this, you know, we can show that care was actually provided. So when we create these agreements for clients, we always give them a caregiver log where daughter will would, you know, enter that she was there, you know, the day that she was there, how long, what did she do? And, you know, to keep track of that all as a way to be able to show Medicaid someday, this was not a gift. Mm -hmm. This money was legitimately for these services that have been provided. I think a question we get sometimes is, what kind of services <laughs> can a family member provide and be paid for? And it's right. really broad. It is. You want to give some examples? Yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, it doesn't have to be medical care. Mm -hmm. You know, the caregiver doesn't have to be a nurse or any kind of a, a you know, a trained healthcare provider. So it's, it's every, I mean, it could be sitting with mom or dad and playing cards mm -hmm. with them. It's really just there sort of as a, as a sitter mm -hmm. almost. But then it also includes, you know, helping with the chores and the meal preparation and, you know, making sure that the lawn gets mowed and really, you know, just helping people with all of those standard kinds of 
you know, typical daily activities. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, it's not limited, um, and it and it doesn't have to be, um, like I said, any kind of skilled services. Right. And then I think the next question we get whenever we offer this as a strategy to families is, well, how much can I pay? And is <laughs> right, it an hourly right, rate, right. a weekly rate, a monthly right. rate? And I think maybe we should explore how we typically design these contracts in mm-hmm. terms of how much compensation can be paid, what's reasonable, and how frequently the compensation is paid. And so what we do is we try to keep a thumb on the market, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you're hiring a caregiver from a local agency, um, Mm -hmm. you know, what's sort of the going rate in your geographic area? You know, are you just sitting and playing cards or are you administering medications? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the... you know, the activities that you're providing, the services being provided, you know, also get factored into that. So there's no magic number. It has to be a facts and circumstances, but it has to be reasonable. Mm-hmm. You can't come in and say, okay, I'm going to charge mom, you know, $100 an hour to prepare her meals. Um, so definitely a test of reasonableness. And then we, you know, we, like I said, we do the research um, to keep a thumb on, you know, sort of what the market, you know, kind of the going rates are. Right. So then let's compare and contrast a caregiver agreement Mm -hmm. with what we call a contribution agreement. So kind of set the stage here. We have a, let's say, parent again, but who is living with someone else, and maybe that's a child, and the child is wondering, well, could mom contribute to the household expenses that she's utilizing now that she's living with me. Right. So, yes, absolutely. Because this is, I mean, this is also a very legitimate Mm -hmm. thing that, that typically happens without a contractual agreement. So this, you know, putting an agreement in place is just going to memorialize it and create a paper trail to be able to provide to Medicaid someday. So yeah, so in this scenario, say mom is living with son Mm -hmm. and um, mom, you know, contributes, you know, to the monthly bills, to the electric bill, to the groceries, um, you know, to maintaining the house, you know, to all of those kinds of things. So again, there's a test of reasonableness. You know, mom can't reimburse son, you know, five grand a month and his, you know, living expenses are only a thousand dollars a month. Right. Um, so it definitely has to be factored into what kinds of expenses are being incurred. But yeah, mom can legitimately um, make a payment to son in this, you know, my example. Um, and that's, again, not going to be considered a gift. It's not going to be questioned because there will be a contractual agreement that reflects, you know, what that payment is for. I feel like so many times son would say to us, how can I prove that mom's actually contributing? Do I put something in the memo line of the check right? or do I have to keep receipts? And that's where these agreements are so handy because it is a binding contract. So in a lot of these cases, even with parent to child relationships, a lot of this would be done strictly out of love and affection. Yes. There would be no expectation of payment for services or reimbursement for out-of-pocket costs, but by legitimizing it in a written agreement, Medicaid will never consider it a gift. Right. And you don't have to worry as much, I don't feel like, about making sure you document in the memo line of the check or otherwise keeping proof of what you're doing. Right. Because it never is going to be considered a gift. And I think with contribution agreements, one distinction is no income taxes due on the payments that mom's contributing to son in the example that you gave because it's not compensation for services, rather it's reimbursement for his out-of-pocket expenses. Exactly. And if mom was living anywhere, regardless of the fact that it's now with son, she'd have those same expenses. Mm -hmm. And Medicaid 
permits that as long as you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's. Absolutely. And yeah, because the last thing you want somebody to feel like they have to do is keep, you know, every electric bill and say, okay, well, there's, you know, five of us that live in the house, mom's one fifth, right. and have to keep track. So that's, yeah, so that's the wonderful thing about the agreement. You know, you kind of look at all of that when you're setting the monthly amount in the beginning. So it's a reasonable amount, but then you don't have to keep all of that paperwork. So then related to where the senior is living, let's talk about two strategies surrounding truly either the home, so mom's home, or if she's moving in with son, son's home, and a couple strategies that we can utilize in an intermediate planning context. So I think let's start with this concept of if daughter moved in with mom, there is a strategy we can implement that would allow mom's home, the value of her actual real estate to be exempted as long as that daughter provided care to mom and resided there for a period of time prior to applying for Medicaid. So I'll let yeah, you sure. really explain the legal technical <laughs> okay. side yeah. of that. So it's what you're referring to as the caregiver child exception. And so important distinction here, this exception is only permitted for a child. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be for a grandchild. It's not going to be for a niece or a nephew. It has to be a child. And so how it works is like Amber said. So in, in you know the example, it's daughter actually moves into mom's home. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if mom were to just deed her house to daughter and go and apply for Medicaid, Medicaid's going to say, okay, well, that's a gift and then there's gonna be a penalty period imposed. There's gonna be a consequence because mom can't just give her house away and then become immediately eligible for Medicaid. But if daughter moves in with mom and lives there with her as a caregiver child for at least two years prior to when mom needs to apply for Medicaid benefits, there's an exception that says the house can actually be deeded to the daughter and Medicaid is not going to impose a penalty. So this is a huge planning huge. opportunity. Obviously gotta have the right facts. I mean, not all kids can just move in with their parent to, you know, to satisfy the requirements for this exception. Also, it has to be a legitimate situation. Um, you know, we've had, <laughs> had people say, well, how's anybody gonna know if I was really living there? And yeah, well, that, that's not gonna fly. We wanna make sure you actually have to submit affidavits from two unrelated people as part of the Medicaid application um, to verify you know the living arrangement um, so far you know with our practice we're, we've been pretty lucky um, in some states they are they have a lot of requirements you know they want documentation from the doctor that care was required and that the child was actually providing the care um, you know they want to see proof that the child's you know driver's license and their mail and the address they use on their taxes and all of that you know was changed to reflect mom's residence you know currently um, in Delaware and Maryland that's not that extent of information isn't required um, but we always want to make sure nonetheless it is a legitimate situation because we never know mm -hmm. when we'll get that application that they require that kind of information so great planning opportunity um, but got to have the right facts and it entirely protects the value of that home yes. which is 
invaluable and only requires a two-year planning window, not a five-year planning window. So when we can Mm -hmm. tap that strategy, we do every time. But like you said, it requires the right facts and circumstances. Mm -hmm. We had a client come in just this week who mom has a really nostalgic beach house. Mm. It's been in the family for a long, long time. It's honestly probably one of those old cottages that they bought three or four decades ago, but they want to keep it in the family. Otherwise, she has very little cash. Mm, Yeah. With proper planning, if there was a child who could move in with mom, keep her at home for two years, then after two years, the really important beach house could then be deeded to that child who moved in and the house is now protected. Mom's eligible for Medicaid. So such a huge opportunity, but you can also see when people wait too long to get good advice, they miss the window, they miss the opportunity. And now we're not in intermediate planning anymore. We're now in crisis. And it's important, especially in Delaware, that's a huge point because, you know, we can get people eligible for care at home. Right. And so people will often think, Oh, well, okay, well we can get care while that two-year window and no it doesn't work that way the two years has to be before you're ever applying for any Medicaid benefits so that's why it's an intermediate strategy right important thing too you know I was sitting thinking of the questions that we get um, you know so in our scenario it's mom you know daughter is moving in with mom and providing care and then the house gets you know deeded to daughter so the question is, you know, it, maybe their son and other daughter, you know, if there are other children, they're saying, what? Mm. My sister's going to get the beach house deeded to her? What does that look like? Um, so there are planning, you know, we'd have to make sure that that child is on board and cooperative with, you know, that then the daughter could immediately add her siblings' names to the deed or oftentimes we'll actually have them place the property in a trust, but it would initially initially have to go you know from mom to the caregiver child and so you got to put a lot of trust in that caregiver child you got to make sure they don't have liens in their name that kind of thing um, so you got to do some homework but you know then that has to be considered too is sort of what's the ultimate goal for the house right so The other strategy is the final strategy we're going to discuss in this episode, and it's something that I've actually used in my own family. (laughs) It is what we call the purchase of a life estate in the home of another, which is a legal technical mouthful, honestly, (laughs) but it's when you have, let's just stick with parent and child. It's when you have a parent who actually is going to maybe sell their primary residence and move in with a child or doesn't already own a home and is going to move in with a child. The first distinction I think we have to say is that this strategy is not limited to just parent and children. This could be any relationship, but in this context, we're just going to stick, I think, with parent and child. It makes it a little easier. Yeah. So, so parent does not own his or her own home and has decided that he or she is going to move in with son, let's just say. And so let's talk about what this looks like and how this is an intermediate strategy. And I think the the key takeaway is this one is only a one-year planning window. Yeah. So this, again, when you have the right facts, is a great planning opportunity. So the way this works, you know, so we've got mom or yeah, mom is moving in with son, son right? Yep. Yeah. So mm-hmm. mom has sold her home. Mom has cash. Mom is going to move in with son. And she's actually going to purchase, you know, typically son's going to let mom move in. There's not going to be any cash exchanged. But in the Medicaid planning world, what mom can do is actually purchase 
what we call a life estate interest in son's home. Um, and so life estate interest, you know, that means that mom has a legal right to reside in the home for the remainder of her lifetime. That's mm -hmm. actually a legal um, interest in real estate that a person can purchase. And so the mechanics of this, um, some would have to have his home appraised. Um, so you'd have to have, you know, an appraisal done by a licensed real estate appraiser. And then Medicaid actually publishes tables where they assign what they call life estate values. And so it's a, a, a percentage that gets assigned based on the age of a person. And the older the person is, the smaller the percentage. And so what all of that means is, you know, if you have a an 80 year old who is gonna purchase an interest in son's home, and I, my goodness, I don't even know what, let's just say the factor is 20%, you know, like a 0.2. Um, so what that means is they, that based on the value, Medicaid would allocate, you know, if, if it's 20%, you know, 20% to mom for her life estate interest, and then 80% of the value would be allocated to the son. And so if, mom's or if son's home you know keep the numbers easy yeah. if it appraised for a hundred thousand dollars then that means mom could pay son twenty thousand dollars for that life estate interest and medicaid is going to respect that as a legitimate purchase so it's a way to transfer cash from mom to son in our example um, without medicaid considering that a gift now the medicaid regulations do require that mom would have to live there for at least one year in order for that to be respected as a legitimate purchase and not a gift. So, you know, you gotta make sure when you're doing this kind of planning that, you know, everyone expects that mom is gonna be able, or, you know, the parent, you know, whoever the purchaser is, is gonna be able to reside in the home for at least a year um, to make the strategy viable. I think about a case we had years ago where son was identifying mom's need for care and he got good advice. Mm -hmm. And we said, if you think you can do it, mom could take a majority of her cash, buy a life estate interest in your house, allow her to move in there. And one year is all that has to go by. And if you can, you and your wife can pr provide the care she needs for at least one year before transitioning her into a skilled level of care, then all of her cash is sheltered and off the table and it's only a one year planning window. And sure enough, it worked exactly how we planned. He marked his calendar for nine months after the date of purchase, contacted us and said, okay, we've got three months left. Now what do we do to make sure that we are on the right timeline? Mm -hmm. Because three months later, she could qualify for Medicaid. Right. And it was just a fantastic way of sheltering her cash as a nest egg. Yes. And so I think kind of to wrap up today's episode, we'll just reiterate some of the things we otherwise discuss when we're talking about Medicaid planning. This isn't implemented as a way to necessarily shelter mom's money for son. This is a way to shelter mom's money for mom because once she becomes eligible for Medicaid, if there's something over and above what Medicaid pays for, and she doesn't have a nest egg set aside, she's going to either have to go without it or son's going to have to chip in out of his own pocket. So by transitioning this money in this last example to son, he's going to be able to hold on to that and use it if mom needs 
dentures or hearing aids or wants a subscription or an iPad or a recliner right. or take a vacation if she's able to or whatever, there's a nice nest egg. But then someday when mom passes away, that's still the legacy mom would have otherwise wanted to leave to her family. So I feel like it's a win-win. Yeah, and that's a great, great distinction. And, you know, we often, um, I think it's important to, to say, you know, we often will still use an irrevocable asset protection trust as part of this intermediate planning. You know, we, 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 there's, you know we've done another episode on those trusts, but those trusts typically require a five-year planning window. But those trusts also can be used as the place where these funds, these these funds that are able to be transferred through intermediate planning, you know, once they're transferred to son or daughter or whoever it is, then those funds can get parked in mm -hmm. and at the son or daughter can then in a second transaction, park those assets in a trust. Mm -hmm. So that way they truly are set aside as a nest egg for mom or dad. Um, as a way to protect it from risks that mm -hmm. the son or daughter or whoever you know might incur if they get divorced or if they become disabled or blah 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 you know so it's really important that this is all done as part of a comprehensive plan right and then what's great about that too is then we still honor mom's final wishes her yes. testamentary intent because whatever's left of the nest egg is in a trust and then at mom's later death it might still go equal shares to her kids rather than just to that child yeah. that she purchased yeah. a life estate interest in his home. So yeah, comprehensive planning is so super important. <laughs> yeah. We never want our listeners to hear these things and think, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to do a one-off and I'm just going to do right. this, that, or the other without looking at the whole big picture. Yes and how this all plays together. So. And to the taxation, you know, yeah. we touched on some of the taxation considerations and that's really important. You know, I wanted to mention that with respect to the purchase mm -hmm. of the life estate interest. Mm -hmm. So that's a purchase. Mm -hmm. So, you know, typically if, um, you know, in our case, it was mom purchasing an interest in son's home, if it's his primary residence, he's not likely gonna have to pay tax on that, but it's reportable. So again, you know, we can't say it enough. Um, you gotta make sure if you're considering this kind of planning that you're getting proper advice, you know, often an accountant is gonna need to be involved as well to make sure that, you know, any tax considerations are, are you know, brought into the mix. Yeah, perfect way, I think, to wrap up this yeah. episode. Anything else that... I think that'll do it. All yeah, right. yeah, thank you. Perfect, thank you. So thanks for being with us today on Off the Clock. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at pwwlaw.com. Of course, you can contact us directly by calling 302-628-4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. See you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals. <laughs>